Well, let's open our Bibles to the New Testament. I know the last two weeks we were in Genesis. We're thankful for that faithful exposition, but we're back to the New Testament, the series that uh, I'm working through in Luke, uh, the third gospel, Luke in chapter 6. As you're turning to Luke chapter 6, let me welcome those who might be uh, worshiping and tuning in for the message online. Uh, it's good to have you online or watching uh, later on. In fact, I met one of our folks that's a regular online, and that was great. Uh, we long to have you all eventually with us here in the sanctuary for the worship of God and the ministry of God's people. Let's hear God's word. We'll read verses 37 to 42, and then we'll introduce it further. Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 37. Through 42. Jesus says, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher. But everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. Thus far we read in God's holy word, may he bless it to all who hear, believe, and obey it. Amen. What does it mean to follow Jesus and be his disciple? That's part of what this passage is addressing. Let's remind ourselves of the context. It's been a few weeks. Uh, What's happening here in Luke chapter 6? Well, we remember um, that in verse 13, Jesus called his disciples and chose from among them 12 whom he named apostles. So it's the beginning of very formalized and intentional training of his disciples and particularly those 12 apostles. And we ought to praise God that Jesus takes so much time to train his followers. He's very intentional and very clear uh, if we're paying attention. As the chapter moves on, Luke chapter 6, we notice that Uh, Luke is giving his equivalent of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Matthew has something in 5, 6, and 7 called the Sermon on the Mount. Here it's uh, in chapter 6, verse 17, Luke's Sermon on the Plain. We describe the relationship of those two sermons. But here, as Luke reports this sermon, there are Beatitudes, and here there are woes. Jesus is speaking about broad spiritual principles. And then in verse 27, he says, love your enemies. That uh, earthquake of a truth. 
And in verse 31, he gave what many of us have dubbed the golden rule in uh, Luke 6, verse 31. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. And this Sermon on the Plain continues to, to make statements and to clarify key issues for disciples. In particular, the section we're entering into now, relationships with other Christians. As he's training, particularly his apostles, Jesus brings strong, clear instruction. And so many of the things he says here are memorable. In fact, the world knows a few of these phrases, but I think they take them out of context. Jesus here sets a very high standard for what it means to be a disciple. And these verses, when we hear God's word and it works upon our hearts and minds, will challenge us. We may be shifting in our seats a little. As Jesus calls us, to look at ourself primarily first. We have uh, uh, three main points. If you've seen the sermon note sheet in the bulletin, we're going to begin with taking care with confronting others. And I don't mean to sound too confrontational, but what we're talking about is as you would interact with other believers or as these 12 apostles were going to lead other Christians down the road, there would perhaps be friction or worse, in those relationships. You'll run into the sin of other Christians. How do we respond? And Jesus, as this section of chapter 6 begins, has two negatives and then two positive statements, calling us to take care in contact with other believers. That uh, famous expression, judge not, is the first negative. The second negative is condemn not. What is Jesus saying? Are we never to exercise judgment? I thought the Bible taught us to be discerning. And to be discerning calls for making a choice. I I thought the whole book of Proverbs said, learn from the examples of the word and the precepts of God's law, what's right and wrong, and make sure you're walking in the right place and avoiding the wrong place. My friends, the whole Bible Any system of morality, but for us, the Bible, God's word, God's law, does call us to be discerning, to be clear and decisive in how we live. And that calls for us to make moral judgments. When it talks about making judgments about others, we realize that that happens a lot in life in general. Any parents here? Have you ever chosen a babysitter? You just pick somebody up at the bus station, see if they're busy? No, we we judge and we make discernments. If you're an employer, you've hired someone. Or a teacher in a classroom when you hand in your homework. Makes judgments. Whether it's your own work or it's the product of artificial intelligence. No, when Jesus says judge not and condemn not, what he is addressing is judgmentalism you know how you can really expose the bad part of a bad aspect of something by putting an ism on the end of it i think he's addressing judgmentalism being quick to be critical or lacking a sense of proportion 
someone blows their nose and they drop the tissue on the floor, you rush over, you litterbug, you're vandalizing the sanctity of our church. That would be a lack of proportion. And it's easy to pick an extreme and make fun of it. What is Jesus saying here? There needs to be care exercised as your eyes are open to the morality and the precepts of God. Take care in your interactions with others. Do not be quick to criticize. Make sure you have a sense of proportion. Be aware of your role. And and, and these commands are not in isolation. He's going to develop this as we proceed. All these verses today really hang together. So don't just camp on 37. Realize that all of this is the context for what Jesus is saying. When he says, judge not and condemn not, we need to obey that in the sense that Jesus intends. Avoiding judgmentalism. Not in a way that negates the rest of the Bible. And we can talk more about that later, but just know that uh, it has a particular context and purpose here. But notice that the two negatives are followed by two positives, right? Let's not ignore them as the world so quickly does. It goes on to say, forgive and you'll be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Those are positives. Extensions, not just restraint, but constructive action. Constructive words and constructive action. When you're encountering someone and perhaps they're sinning, perhaps they're sinning against you, there needs to be a disposition towards forgiveness. And when you're in a situation where something's not right, instead of judging and condemning it, try to make a difference. The word give is so broad, is it not? I remember the passage of the scriptures where someone uh, was reminded that they have to love their neighbor and say, well, who's my neighbor, Jesus? I mean, really, I I live in this little cul-de-sac. I don't have many neighbors. And Jesus turns the question on its head. The parable of the Good Samaritan, right? Who is the neighbor? What's the answer to that one? If you don't know, check it out this afternoon. He comes down to say, anyone to whom you have the opportunity to be a neighbor is your neighbor. The negatives are followed by positive, constructive actions. And the more a Christian is aware of morality, we don't just want to flee it or condemn it. We need to be present and active in a constructive way. I was converted as an 18-year-old the summer of 1978, and there was a movie out um, John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John, the movie Grease. And as a young believer, I was, I was aware of my own need for a Savior. I had a marvelous conversion. God's grace came to me, oh, to be forgiven and have a hope of heaven. But I began to see all sorts of moral things in the world. And when I saw that movie, oh, the immorality jumped off the screen. I, I really couldn't enjoy it very much as a brand new believer Because my eyes were so wide open and I was seeing sin on the left, sin on the right. And I was quick to tell everyone else what I had seen. 
at the dinner table. Oh, what an immoral move. And to pontificate and to judge and to condemn. As a very young believer, I wasn't aware of this passage, which would have called me to be a little more cautious, a little more circumspect, and some other things that Jesus goes on to say here. The Christian's eyes are opened. And sometimes we cannot help but speak. I cannot be silent at some things. But what is Jesus doing here? He's giving training and instruction to believers. And it is really important what Jesus says here. Those two negatives are important, and then the constructive actions are important. And you know what? Put together, who do they remind you of? Don't these very things remind us of the Lord Jesus Christ himself? God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son into the world, that those who believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He came not to condemn the world, but that through him the world might have life. If you're a Christian, do you look like Jesus? Brothers, we we can't be quick to judge, quick to condemn, and we can't ignore the call to be gracious and merciful and giving. These things ought to stir us a great deal. And before we move on, perhaps you're wondering why I haven't commented yet, but here we comment that these measured actions, these exhortations, are coupled with rewards. Each one in a very clear way. Jesus' instruction here is quite memorable. Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven, praise God. Give and it will be given to you. There's a biblical principle here of sowing and reaping. And we ought not take the final one, which is elaborated on, and create a health and wealth gospel. I tell you, the devil has so much fun taking one thing that God has said and blowing it out of context, out of proportion, twisting and misleading some. God knows the thoughts and intentions of your heart. If you're giving only to get, he sees that. Come on. But there are actions and measured appropriate responses. There are pairs here. And they are related. If we act graciously with one another, we will receive gracious treatment. That's the promise of God. And it doesn't necessarily say, judge not, and the one you're not judging will not judge you. Condemn not, and the one you don't condemn will not condemn you back. No, sometimes we do get it back in a bad way from the individual But rather, in the sovereignty of God, these principles will bear true in your life. Because a lot of Christians have turned the other cheek and gotten slapped. But is not God's word true? Jesus here says, this is the way, walk in it, 
and there will be appropriate measured rewards. I think that's why at the end, after the fourth one, not just about giving, but I think that elaboration at the end it speaks to all four pairs. Given to you, and he says, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, and it will be put into your lap. For with the measure you used, it will be measured back to you. The illustration and language there came from the ancient world. If they were selling a basket of rice or grain or whatever, barley would be more appropriate than rice. Um, They would shake the container as it settles and fill it up, top it off, pat it down so that the transaction is fair and the amount purchased is handed over properly. Jesus is trying to double down in the imagery of these new converts, these new disciples, these new apostles who have come out of the world and the way the world works to say, when God deals with you in terms of sowing and reaping, he will not under-provide, he will not skimp, he will oversee and reward his people. Well, Take care in confronting others or in contact with others. These first things here are very clear. But it goes on very quickly as Jesus speaks of a parable. Starting in verse 39 and and, uh, 40. And here we note that he says, take heed to your instruction. And you can see the way I worded that heading in the sermon outline. I do mean it in two different senses. So don't doze off on me here. Take heed to your instruction. The first sense is a warning about bad teachers. Be careful who's teaching you. Be careful who's leading you. Be careful who's influencing you. Verse 39, the parable, I think it may be the shortest in the Bible. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? Okay, what what do we do with this short little parable? A parable is something that is understandable, a word picture to make a point. So we we don't want to unpack it to the nth degree. Uh, And it's talking about blind people, especially think now in the ancient world, a blind person didn't have as many resources. Um, I was just remembering, I don't know why, on my... Vacation, we were going up and down the elevator on board the ship, and on a certain floor, a voice would always tell you what floor you were on. And I noticed that some of those rooms had special doorbells for the hearing impaired and other things to help people find their way. In the ancient world, if you were a blind man, you needed someone to lead you. What good would it be to have a blind man lead you? Won't you both fall into a pit? And there's a real danger there. Jesus points out falling into a pit. That sounds pretty dangerous. It's not just that it's it's not wise. It's dangerous. And when Jesus, even in a parable, points out danger, you may not physically fall into a pit. You may spiritually fall into a pit. The danger is real. Parables are um, a rhetorical device to teach spiritual realities. So there is a danger. You follow a false teacher, and you'll be crashing, and you'll be caught. You'll be harmed. 
I was speaking with uh, some other pastors at a recent event, and, and I think I even mentioned it yesterday at the membership class. There's a popular, well-named man uh, down south doing ministry, and he continues to move away from the Bible, to disparage the Bible. And because he's so winsome and an effective communicator, and he's got a last name that's part of being a famous preacher, people are listening to him, and they will fall into a pit. So the first point is, take heed about who you're following, who's teaching you, who's leading you. But there's a second sense, if we say take heed to your instruction, it's a warning to those who would presume to teach or lead. Okay, be careful if you try to lead someone who's blind, because you yourself may not yet have full vision. I don't know which way you were inclined to take the parable more the passive way that you're being led, or the active way that when you lead, be cautious. Look to your instruction. Look to your role of influence. Remember the first audience here, the, the apostles in particular are being addressed. But all of us, we need to be mindful that we do not yet have a perfect grasp of the things of God. Amen? God works with us. I prayed recently, I'm thankful, Lord, that my, my justification is done. It is finished. But my sanctification, Lord, it's still underway. I'm thankful that you're doing that. We need to be aware and not presume to be qualified to speak on everything at every time. And here, I guess if I would take these two senses of instruction, the young believers or those that have not been discipled carefully, watch out who you follow. Older believers, mature believers, watch out and take care over your role and influence towards others. Perhaps you can think of an example where someone was overconfident in their leading. Oh, I know the way. I don't need to ask for directions. Man, don't worry, I'm not going to throw us under the bus. No, honey, I know exactly where I am. Don't need the GPS. Don't need to stop for directions. Long before GPS, I remember my first trip as a high school senior into Chicago from Wisconsin, driving my dad's Chevy Impala with my friend, and we're heading in for a weekend in Chicago, big city, we're old enough, and we got lost. (laughs) But I confess we very quickly abandoned any thought that we knew where we were going. Don't presume you're qualified to spiritually instruct others. And I'm not just talking to the Sunday school teachers and my fellow elders. I'm talking to everybody here. Because if you're a believer, you exert influence over your children, maybe a spouse, a neighbor. Someone's looking to you to understand Christianity. And if you're judgmental and quick to condemn, there's a problem. Or if you neglect the forgiving and giving, there's a problem. So this warning cuts both ways. Those uh, that are being led, watch out who you're following. Those who are leading and influence, take care how you act. And it's good to remember, brothers and sisters, that James tells us clearly, not many of you should become teachers 
For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. I'm thankful in my years of preaching, still Saturday night, there's that sense that I got to get this right before I stand up on Sunday morning. And I don't always get it right, and I've got fellow elders that are helping watch me and, and watch what happens here in our ministry, and sometimes we correct things if they're not exactly right. But there is an accountability and a sense of caution that ought to come when we teach or lead. And before I move on, I want to mention not another warning, but a welcome Because we're reading these words and that short little parable, can a blind man lead a blind man? Oh, that's so so spot on, isn't it? So helpful. Let's remember who's teaching us at this very moment. Who is speaking to his disciples in this Sermon on the Mount or Sermon on the Plain? Jesus has gathered his people and said, this is the way it is. Watch out for this. Watch out for that. Do this. Don't do that. Jesus, the light of the world, is instructing us. And he says, I go to prepare a place for you. I won't leave you as orphans. I'll send my comforter, another like me, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, will indwell each and every believer to to guide us, to bring us into understanding, to instruct us, to warn us. The spirit of truth. Every Christian, everyone who's genuinely born again of God has the Holy Spirit at work in him. And Jesus keeps teaching us. Jesus will guide us and caution us. He'll bring his word to our remembrance. And when we get it wrong, when we do this self-assessment and see a lot of garbage that we've left in our wake. The Jesus that's instructing us is the same Jesus who died for our sins. He who knows us best and loves us most laid down his life for his sheep. He didn't lay down his life just for the smartest preachers and teachers those disciples who were very cautious, he laid down his life for all of us. It's a welcome reminder. Follow Jesus Christ. Hear his words. Come to him for grace and forgiveness and continue to walk in the light of that gospel. Take heed to Jesus. Well, a third heading here this morning. Let's uh, look at what else Jesus goes into right on the heels of this parable. And all these sections are intimately connected. This third section, I would say, take charge of your own sin first. Okay, if the blind leading the blind left some flexibility, which role you're in, we're all in the spotlight beginning in verse 41, are we not? Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? And it's okay to maybe smile when you hear that. We all know that a speck is bad enough to cause you great discomfort in your eye. And thinking of a log in your eye. When I first heard this as a kid, I laughed. I thought that was pretty funny. Jesus is using 
It's called comic exaggeration to make his point, to get his audience focused on the main thing here. It's, it's absurd that someone with such an impediment, some kind of tree limb in their own eye, worried about somebody with a speck in theirs. It, it, that situation, that word picture gets our attention. But gets our attention to what? The spiritual reality. And he's looking at these 12 apostles. He knew them. He knew them a lot better. Peter was sitting there. Oh, Peter. And Jesus is trying to instruct and to help. And, and his point here is to take charge of your own sin first. You see, we have our priorities backwards. That impulse to involve ourselves with others, that impulse that led uh, so often among the most righteous of the Jewish people of old becoming Pharisees, that's our propensity in our not fully sanctified state. To, To get to a certain point at which we're focused more on others than on ourselves. Could Jesus be more clear than this illustration that you need to care for yourself first? And you know this word for log in your own eye, it's about as comic as you can imagine. The word actually means pillar, a beam that would be used to support a roof in a a house, for instance. We're not just talking about a, a piece of kindling for the backyard fire. The word Jesus uses that big. So he's trying to be clear and arrest us and get our attention. Our priorities need to be what? Look at our own eye first. Look at ourselves first. So as we come to church or as we go to a Bible study or a prayer meeting or we bump into a fellow believer at uh, the grocery store um, and we notice something, Jesus' instruction would say, make sure to look at yourself first. And not just instance by instance, but in general. What do we get wrong? How how could we end up with a log and then be picking at somebody else? What would we get wrong? Uh, Philip Ryken, who used to be a pastor in Philadelphia, 10th Presbyterian, and now he's in Chicago at Wheaton Church in Wheaton, Illinois. Um, He's got a great sermon on this, and and he helped me here. What do we get wrong? A couple of his points said, first, we minimize our own sin. We minimize it. We, We begin to be comfortable with that log, and we find a way of looking out the other eye or something. But his language is pretty arresting. He says we pretend our sin is smaller than it is. If we look at pornography, it's only once in a while. If we gossip, it's only because we really want people to know and pray. If we have a bad argument, we say, well, I only yelled. I didn't hit the person. We're in the habit of minimizing our sin. It's smaller than it really is. Jesus would say uh, it's big and it's important. 
We also get wrong, there's a second thing we get wrong, is we overestimate our ability to deal with others' sins. We see it, oh, it's so clear. How does does he not see that? How does she not see this? I'll, I'll go let them know. I can see this really clearly. I know what's going on over here. We overestimate our ability to deal with others' sins. And you know what? We're not omniscient. We don't always know the context, and we often have mixed motives. What Jesus is saying here to his disciples, the apostles, and to us, is that there needs to be a measure of self-care, self-control in interactions with other believers. We need to be so gracious and so Christ-like. When something's absolutely clear, Jesus didn't mince words. He had harsh words for those Pharisees, more concerned about tithing than caring for widows. But we have to be careful. Take charge of our own sin first. What can we do right? What can we do right? Well, read verse 42 again. Verse 42 says this. How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the Take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye, you hypocrite. But Jesus doesn't stop there, does he? Make sure you hear this part. Especially if you're convinced that you've got a couple of logs in your eye. He says, first take the log out of your own eye. And then you'll see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. We don't back off and disengage completely because we're imperfect. I would, I would ask, but I'd be scared. Anybody here think they're perfect, fully sanctified? Don't raise your hand. If you think that, I will meet with you after the service and disabuse you of that notion. And I may not do it carefully and perfectly. We're not perfect yet, but Jesus says deal with the known sin in your life first and then do your best to help your brother. That's why I think earlier in the passage the negatives were connected with the positive. Don't judge, don't condemn, but don't walk away. Get involved, be be forgiving, be engaging with grace and, and with practical help. We're in this together. So as Jesus tries to guard and prepare these disciples for their role, and as Jesus writes for us as well, we can't just sit home, wait until we're perfect. And this is where God's grace really helps us. Again, Phil Riken on this point, he said this. It's worth remembering. The grace that we give flows from the grace that we have received. You know, if I've dealt with that log in my own eye, how did I miss it for so long? And yes, pastors have logs. And I'm just talking about my past. They they can come up. We We get those specks and logs and sins out of our lives as we go through that humiliating and humbling process, as we personally plead for fresh grace and taste of forgiveness and pardon and hope and joy restored, maybe our own little Jonah experience in the belly of the whale, 
then we can go on and speak very clearly, even boldly, about the grace of God. Because we've tasted it afresh. Who described evangelism or missionary work as uh, one beggar helping another beggar find where, where bread is to be found. The grace we give flows from the grace we've received. And when you have been tenderized by looking at your sin and then being recovered by Jesus, then you're in a better place to try to help your brother. And help one another we must. The great commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength. And the second great commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. By this will all men know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. Well, let's turn to some closing exhortations this morning. We've been looking at this portion of this wonderful sermon of preparation for disciples from Luke chapter 6. Some clear commands. Um, What are our takeaways? I, I think we have to first be careful how we respond, especially to other Christians. We have to take care. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to keep control of our impulses in that care. And it's not just a withdrawing, it's an engaging. Remember the positives and negatives of the first part? And then from the second part of the text, there was a clear reminder. We need to be careful who we follow. Keep Christ as Lord. Has he ever led you astray? Has he ever led you astray? Has he ever let you down? Has he ever failed to prepare you for what you're going to face? If you've been paying attention. What a great shepherd. All his provisions. He knows our weakness. He knows what we face. He knows our temptations. He's the perfect high priest. He's been tempted in every way as we are, but yet without sin, Hebrews 4. I'm going to follow him. And when he says things that are really hard, I just need to remember even what Peter said. I think it was Peter. Where else can we go? Jesus, you alone have the words of life. You are the son of God. And when it gets hard, I've got to stay with you. And and maybe this last exhortation you don't hear enough, but here we go. Be concerned for your soul. Take care for your soul. We were on vacation for eight days and we had somebody watching the house, so none of our house plants died. But sometimes we, in the past, when we've gone away, I come back and in my office the plant's kind of yellow. And the pot almost tips over because there's no moisture in the soil. It hasn't been cared for. How do you care for your soul? You drink deeply of the grace that is ours in Christ Jesus. You look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Don't you love those words from Hebrews? He is the author and perfecter of our faith. So if we look to him, we're going to learn about faith. We're going to be caring for our soul. There's so much to be done after you are born again. 
You need the care and nurture of the Spirit of God, the Word of God, the people of God. These are the things that God has provided. Be concerned for your soul. Strive as you're concerned for a consistency of living. Christianity is not just for Sundays. We serve Christ on Monday and Tuesday and Friday and Saturday nights. It sounds like a lot of work. All this care, all this self-assessment, all these questions. But these things are important. And we need to watch how we walk. We need to walk as children of light, Paul said to the Colossians. In light of the gospel which has set us free, be careful how you walk. Galatians, don't use your freedom to indulge sin. There's work to be done. But there's help. And Jesus guides us, directs us, instructs us. So let's reflect on his word. Let's take it to heart and let's pray that he helps us put it into action. Heavenly Father, we do thank you today for Luke chapter 6. These clear and powerful teachings of Jesus. So memorable. Lord, may we not be cowed into uh, no discernment by the judge not command. May we understand it properly and may it give us caution in appropriate ways. But Father, may we take in all of your word here. Embody it, believe it, and by your grace, live it out. We pray for your help. We pray that we would be honest in our introspection, that we would care for our soul. What would it profit us to gain the whole world but lose our soul? So we thank you for these words of life and light. Bless us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.